On this episode of AvTalk, we discuss the recently released preliminary report on the crash of Sriwijaya Air Flight 182. Air traffic in China falls dramatically to start the year, and Gabriel Lee sits down with Air Greenland CEO Jakob Nitter to discuss how the airline has managed through the pandemic and how they're planning to emerge on the other side. Hello and welcome to episode 104 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. How are you doing? Hello, Jason. I'm doing very well. How are you, sir? I'm well. Let's let's get right into it. We got a busy episode for a change. We do have a busy episode. The first thing we have is out today. We're recording the 10th of February and out today is the preliminary factual report from the crash of Sriwijaya Air Flight 182. As we discussed, I think in the previous episode, there was some focus on the auto throttles and the preliminary report confirmed that the, the focus is indeed on the auto throttles. What the report says is that as they were climbing through about 10,000 feet, the left-hand engine auto throttle began rolling back. Uh, the the left-hand engine also began rolling back and that continued till about 10,000 900 feet when having rolled back quite far and the right-hand engine remaining at climb power, they the asymmetrical thrust began to affect the aircraft and there was a left turn and then the, the aircraft banked to more than 45 degrees. So that's the new specific information where we are, we, we still unfortunately don't have the cockpit voice recorder recovered yet. The flight data recorder has been recovered, ADSB data from the uh, Indonesian authorities was used to kind of piece together as well with the, the flight data recorder information, what was happening with the aircraft, but we still don't know what was happening on the flight deck. or We, we don't know what the pilots were saying or, or communicating. And since we don't have any radio calls of distress or anything like that, we don't really have much more information than we had you know, right after the crash. Yeah. Basically, all we know at this point is that there was an almost certainly an auto throttle malfunction, something that had been happening to that aircraft uh, a number of times in the days leading up to the crash. And for whatever reason, the crew was unable or, or whatever other reason was not able to counteract the asymmetrical thrust with the malfunction of the auto thrust. And once the autopilot decided it, it was beyond its capabilities of, of counteracting with rudder trim, it had uh, disabled the, the uh, autopilot was disabled and the pilots were, should have taken over at that point, but unfortunately, they were unable to or – well, we, we just don't know why. And that's why it's going to be so important to find the cockpit voice recorder wherever it may be right now. Right. And and the location of the debris field is is known and obviously the flight data recorder has been recovered and, and was recovered relatively quickly. So hopefully it's just a matter of – narrowing down the search area even further and digging it out of you know whatever sand or, or silt it may be in. Uh, but some, some helpful information coming out in the preliminary report. Obviously, we don't know 
exactly we kind of know the beginning steps, but of course, as, as we always talk about with with any incident or or, or even a crash, it, it's always you know many things lining up to cause the the catastrophic failure. So we'll we'll have to wait and see, and hopefully they do find the cockpit voice recorder because that that'll go a long way in kind of um, providing some some much needed context to, to to what was happening on the flight deck. Yeah, and in the near term, there's not much the authorities or the airline itself can do other than uh, reminding flight crews to stay vigilant for things like this. And yeah, that's really all they can do. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, the there's some discussion to be had about you know the maintenance practices and and you know whether those were you know in in line with what they were supposed to be. But once you do that, I mean, there, there's there's not much more that you can you can do at this point. Right. And to clarify, auto thrust is not required for flight. So that could be inoperative and the flight would still be still be able to operate without that. Right. Right. That is very true. This was, you know, something that something that you know is used all the time but is not necessarily necessary for the operation of the aircraft. We'll wait to see where we go from there with the final report due out later this year. Um, Indonesian authorities, uh, I mean, unfortunately, we're familiar with their reporting schedule and style at this point. And later in the year, we should expect to see a, a final report, a detailed final report, and pointing out the, the cause of the crash or, or the probable cause of the crash, we should say. Yep. Expect to hear nothing for uh, quite a while upcoming now. So, we took a look at data from the past year with regard uh, to China and the Chinese recovery that we had all been talking about at the end of last year is not anymore. Um, Traffic's down, back down to 55% below pre-pandemic levels. So, so baselining last Early last Jan- late last February or for December of 2019 into January of 2020, using that as a baseline. So before anything happened and, and traffic fell off a cliff, um, we're back down in China to to about 55 percent down from that. It things kind of leveled off in November and and December, and then at the kind of midpoint in December, everything just really went off a cliff uh, again and things are are still trending downwards and it will be very interesting to see if there is any traffic growth uh, around the new year uh, the, the the Chinese new year there's a lot of encouragement to stay home uh, and not travel in what is normally one of the busiest travel periods in China so this will be very interesting to see how airlines keep keep growth down if that is in fact their goal. The traffic statistics or, or passenger statistics, traffic passenger traffic was down 60% in January. So fewer flights and, and far fewer people flying. Yeah, I guess that's not really a bad thing because a, a year ago from this period is really when uh, most people believe that this kind of spiraled out of control since this is really a huge travel period for China usually. And there really weren't restrictions in place just yet in China at at that point last year. So the virus kind of spread everywhere 
very rapidly. And I guess they didn't want to have the same repeat as, as what happened last year. But it, it is interesting since travel had rebounded almost entirely in China and, and suddenly it's back on the downtrend. Very interesting. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether or not there's an uptick back to some sort of middling level after the New Year holiday. Which and is basically what happened here after the holiday season. It's Travel had spiked quite high and then went right back down to a, a very middling average. Yeah, and and I think you know part of this is is drawn out by the fact that we're in winter. Setting aside the the holiday period out or outside of that, uh, looking at traffic outside of that, we're, we're you know in in a winter doldrum. And so, what do you expect to see versus what you're seeing? I just wasn't quite expecting such a precipitous drop. I, I thought there might be a gradual downshift during the winter period and then a ramp back up in the spring, but that that's not what we're seeing. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, we're we're you know seeing thousands of flights uh, a day being removed from a schedule. Very odd, but we'll we'll keep an eye on it and see what happens, and then uh, maybe we'll we'll have to keep an eye on our own flights and see what happens here in the U.S. and, and Europe. At uh, we're on a totally different wavelength, it seems, in in terms of how flights are doing and how travel is being regarded than China right now. Speaking of odd, we have Singapore opting for more 777Xs. Yeah, I woke up to that news and was quite shocked. It's kind of the last thing I expected to see. But in a bit of a larger piece of movement at Singapore Airlines, it did announce that it will convert 14 787-10 orders to 11 777-9X orders. I guess that's how you pronounce that, 777-9X or 777-X orders. So now we know the conversion rate of a 777 to, uh, or a 787 to 777-X. That's good. Is that the, the going – now, is that a unit conversion? Like that's always going to be true or is this a, a variable exchange rate? I think it's going to vary as much as the price of Bitcoin. This is not a podcast about that. No, no. Let's steer away from that. But yes, 14 787-10s have become 11 777-Xs, which I guess is surprising on a multiple, multiple levels here that Singapore obviously has no domestic flight market. There are there is nowhere else to go in Singapore other than uh, where Singapore already operates to its its main hub, so it, it's opting to go for larger aircraft over the seven eight seven ten, which oddly enough Singapore sees as a regional aircraft in its fleet. So other airlines see that as kind of a mid haul or, or shorter long haul, and Singapore sees that as a regional aircraft. But the triple seven X is, I guess, the signal from Singapore that it expects in time, twenty twenty five, twenty twenty six, that it will need larger aircraft for long haul flights, possibly to replace its A three eighties. I mean, that was kind of my thinking. I mean, given the well, we had Emirates come out today again and say. We don't expect to take delivery of the the 777X before the first quarter of 2024. Okay, so we're still a ways away from the introduction into service. Singapore is going to to come and say, "I want 
I want 11 of these now. They've got 10 A380s. So that that seems to make sense to me. Yeah, I don't like it because this really kind of does signal the end of the A380 at Singapore, who's one of the, the flagship operators of the A380 at this point. But it, it just seems logical, doesn't it? I mean, the, the numbers make sense, both purely from an aircraft standpoint, but also looking at the numbers, the passenger configurations, and the ability to go from operating a four-engine aircraft to a, a, a two-engine aircraft. Yeah, but at the end of the day, we still don't know who will be the first operator of the 777X or even when that will be, even in what year. So stay tuned and keep listening to the podcast through 2025 when we might have an answer. It's definitely not going to be who we don't think it is. Exactly. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Jason, tell me about a cat. A cat? I can tell you lots about a cat. Tell me about a cat. Um, Anything specific you'd like to know about a cat? Well, I I want to find out how it got where it was and what it did. Oh, I can't answer the how it got where it went. But there is a story out of... Israel, I believe, that a cat got locked in a stored Boeing 737 belonging to El Al and decided to just chow down on the uh, the console above all the instrumentation while it was hanging out locked in the flight deck, which is mm, plastic. not great. Yeah, plastic, foamy stuff. You know, it's that, that layer right above all the instruments that, um, I don't know what you would call it, like the, the console or... The dashboard of a car, I'm, I'm not sure what you would call it, but uh, a cat got locked in and I guess it was either hungry or upset that it was locked in there and just started chomping on everything. Maybe both. I, I would be both, both yeah. if, if, if yeah. I got locked in there. Maybe out of sheer boredom, it was tearing it up. But yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's, I, this is not something that's never happened before. We've seen cats sneaking onto aircraft and and getting a free ride, but I don't think we've heard of one in a a stored aircraft and one actually doing damage to the aircraft. I mean, that's what's very interesting to me because it was a stored aircraft. So one assumes there, there should not have been a way to get in. But cats are crafty. I will give cats them. Cats are very crafty. It, it almost certainly, in my mind, got on the aircraft as people were buttoning it up for storage. Um, a it's cat just been in there forever. You never, yeah, you'd never know it. And it's in a, a passenger airplane, so there are probably all sorts of peanuts and other trinkets under carpets and under seats all over the place. I guess I'd never really wanted to think about that, but you know it's true. I, yeah, that's, yeah. How many kids do you have? Is your house totally clean? (laughs) Oh, no comment. No. (laughs) But no, no, your point is, I'm just saying, I I just didn't think I wanted to ever think about that. Yeah. Uh, But no, you you make a good point that there are probably. We don't know the fate of the cat, uh, if it's being adopted by the CEO of LL or or anything. (laughs) Uh, we, we should find that out. Jason will do some research and get back to us next episode. Exactly. I, I'm looking for a cat. So if they want to fly it to New York, I'll, I'll take it. I mean, that would be a heartwarming story. Wouldn't it? I, I can get on board for that. So I saw a picture the other day of a former Aeromexico 787 in kind of a half of a 787. Seven Aero Mexico livery, all the the logo type of it stripped, but the livery was still on. And I said, "Well, that's interesting." 
and it, it said it was on its way to, to the new owner, but it didn't say who it was. And you tracked it down, and it's Euro Atlantic. Yeah, that's I okay. Yeah, not something anyone would have expected, I think. But Euro Atlantic, a name you you might be familiar with if you've ever booked a Norwegian long haul flight in the past. <laughs> it is a, a mostly charter airline who operates for airlines in need of an airplane, and they need it right now. But Aero Mexico, as a part of its uh, restructuring, coming out of bankruptcy, has retired. A few of its 787s, uh, the Dash 8 variant, which are they're not old aircraft. The first one to go to Euro-Atlantic is only 7.8 years old, was delivered in August 2013. Um, which I think is like a third of the average age of the Euro-Atlantic fleet. Yeah, ex- exactly. Euro-Atlantic is not known for its uh, young aircraft. But this is, this is an airplane that Aeromexico has only had for less than a decade at this point. It even installed Wi-Fi on it just a, a couple of years ago. But it is heading out to Euro-Atlantic. So the next time an airline you're flying has some fleet issues, you may find yourself on a Euro-Atlantic X Aero-Mexico 787-8. There you go. It won't, but it won't be Norwegian anymore. So who could it possibly be? Who could it be at this point? Yeah. Who, who is going to be the most likely airline to, to need a wet lease Euro-Atlantic aircraft at this point? The demand's always there, but certainly the demand. Belgium flight, yeah. Well, Air Belgium itself was operating the uh, the wet lease flights for a bunch of airlines prior to COVID. I was supposed to be on one on lot in uh, March of last year. That's right. They they were parked at the gate next to me when I was when I was leaving Chicago at one time. Yeah, Uh, Air Air Belgium operated for. British Airways at some point, lots. I forget who else, but it was they got around. But they, I, I don't know what the market is at this point. I don't think anyone knows what the market is at this point for much of anything. Yeah. Oh, isn't um, Pakistan uh, using some Euro Atlantic aircraft for flights to the UK? Entirely possible. That that sounds like it would be true. Uh, okay, but I, I can't remember if, if they're still doing it or or if they were planning to do it or or, or what. But yeah, I mean, there there's certainly a market for it, and now they'll be more fuel efficient and and have a better cabin and all that good fun stuff. Because I mean, I, I think their regular fleet is a bunch of seven six seven. I don't mean I don't know what they have that's newer than that, if anything. Euro so, Atlantic, yeah, they have a couple triple seven two hundreds, I think. Oh right, 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 right. I always forget about those. Yeah, so that'll be that'll be nice for them, and and nice for anybody who finds themselves going, "What plane am I on?" Ooh, exactly. So we're going to take a quick break, and we had a chance to not Jason and I, but our, our colleague Gabriel had a chance to sit down with Jakob Nitter, who is the CEO of Air Greenland. So when we come back, we're going to to listen to Gabriel and and Jakob's conversation about where Air Greenland is, you know, through the pandemic, what they're working on. There's a lot going on in Greenland with their airport expansion. They're refreshing their fleet. They've got an A330-800 coming in soon. So there's a lot going on. And so we're going to take a quick break and come back with their conversation and learn about what Air Greenland's been up to. So stay with us. We'll be right back.
So, Jakob Nitter, thank you for joining us, taking a little time to speak with us. I wondered to start off with, could you tell us a little bit about your background and the, the various roles you've held and the path that led to your current position? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Gabriel, for uh, giving us the opportunity here. It's uh, exciting. I'm a home homegrown, uh, you can say. I uh, started my aviation career uh, in Greenland, actually, just out of high school in the beginning as uh, what we call an AFIS operator. That's basically working in the tower, uh, speaking to the aircraft. And then, of course, I looked at all these uh, nice, fancy aircraft and wanted to become a pilot. Uh, I did pilot training. And then just soon found out that I needed a little bit more. I always challenged the system, you know, wanted to improve things. So then I got into management, uh, chief pilot, first on the King Air, which is our medevac aircraft, then uh, assistant chief pilot on the bigger aircraft, uh, moved on to training manager, instructor, then director of flight operations for a few years. And then uh, I ended up in the position as uh, a CEO. So... And of course, done all kinds of training, management training, leadership, and so on over the course of the last 20 years. So you've basically held every role, more or less, at the airline. Well, uh, on the operational side, uh, yeah, I, I started as a co-pilot, you know, and, and, and held most roles within the operational environment, but always really was drawn to the commercial side of the business and, and moved sort of more from the operations to the uh, commercial side. And I guess that's what, uh, in the end, uh, made it possible to make this move. So, yeah. Where did you do your flight training out of curiosity? I did uh, the training in uh, in Oxford in England, uh, at uh, which is now Oxford Aviation College. Uh, it was called Oxford Aviation Training School back then, which was a really, really uh, good training environment. Very, very uh, good school. Great. So then I, I wondered if you might be able to tell us a little bit about Air Greenland and, and some of the things that makes that operation unique, uh, the environment it operates in, particular challenges the airline faces, and so on. Yeah, operating in Greenland is, is never boring. You know, it's a, it's a very diverse operation. Usually, I, I call it Greenland a nine-legged chair because we do so many different things. So we have one of the most complex AOCs or air operator certificates in, in Europe, possibly in the world. And, and the environment is, of course, very, very challenging. One thing is the weather. One thing is the distances, the short runways. In, in Greenland, when you construct a runway, you don't align it with the prevailing wind conditions. You, you put it where there's actually, where it's possible. So some of the places we go into, you know, they will always have a strong crosswind or uh, turbulence going around mountains and, and so on. So, so there are many challenges, but that's also what makes it really, really fun. You know, we have so many great uh, people here who've been here for many, many years, a lot of talent, a lot of experience. So uh, every day is, uh, presents new challenges. When things go wrong, you know, they often go really wrong. Irregularity operations, sometimes a place can fog in for three or four days and the passengers just stack up. And, and, and the, the instrument flying in Greenland is challenging because we don't have any ILSs. Most runways only have NDB approaches, which you know, sounds strange to... to Pilots operating at different place, uh, other places in the world because NDBs are, you know, remnants from World War II, I guess. <laughs> but we're still using them in, in Greenland, so that makes the minimums quite high. And in the winter time, with snow showers and everything, 
I mean, we, we have a lot of diversions, a lot of um, irregularities. Uh, we had crews who have done between 15 and 20 diversions in a week. <laughs> wow, amazing. So I guess your, your pilots there must really know what they're doing. Yeah. We tend to say we have the, the best pilots in the world for this type of operation. You know? So the guys really, really know uh, what they're doing. And the training program is, is designed uh, to target this type of operation. So we have the simulators that we go to are, are modified. So we have the, the exact environment with the mountains, the runway environment uh, to, to, to practice in. So yeah, yeah, our crews, they really know what they're doing. Hmm. So then that kind of takes us to the next thing I was curious about, you know, when the pandemic started and really started shutting down aviation everywhere, I wondered how did Air Greenland approach that situation and, and whether it had a sizable effect on operations? Um, and, and was there anything learned in the process of dealing with that over the past nearly a year uh, that you could talk about? Yeah, when the, when the pandemic hit, I guess it was it was a black swan for us, like it was for for most other airlines. And I think in the beginning, when Europe started shutting down, we didn't see a decrease in in the demand. And I guess I think we were sort of hoping that this would would blow over in a, in a month or two. But then our government shut everything down, and and that's when reality really hit. But then we acted very very quickly. A government-owned company, we didn't get access to any relief packages in Greenland. So we actually very quickly decided that, okay, we have to downsize, we have to adapt the capacity, and we have to do it now. So unfortunately, we had to lay off a lot of people, which to Air Greenland, I think, was a totally unthinkable situation because we've been used to being the infrastructure of Greenland. And being an island with a demand for both, uh, of course, travel and cargo and mail and so on, I don't think it was in our imagination that that we would see such a big decrease in capacity and jobs. But but we acted quickly, and I think that was a learning: is that when these these things happen, the sooner you act, the better. Even though it's the future is uncertain, and you don't know if uh, things are going to blow over. So, I mean, I, th I think in the beginning, we were hoping that, you know, okay, we're going to furlough a, a lot of people, but hopefully we'll take them and cancel the terminations bef before we have to uh, act on them. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. So I think the, the big learning here is to act quick and, and act uh, appropriately. In terms of traffic, we're down on, on the international route. Well, in 2020, we were down between 60 and 70% on uh, on passenger numbers which is is well probably a little bit better than what uh, Europe has seen and, and and other parts of the world but still a a tremendous impact on on the whole operation uh, the last thing i, I want to mention is that we have had a very very good relationship with uh, the authorities through the whole pandemic so um, basically we have been working very, very closely with, with the government here in uh, how do we keep the country running? How do we keep cargo moving in? How do we transport critical personnel around and how, uh, while still protecting the, the public? So today there are no active cases of COVID in Greenland. I think the, 
the total number of cases has been kept below 30, 30 cases total. So as a society, we have made it through the, the pandemic successfully, I would say, and, and a good working relationship between the government and, and the uh, transportation companies, uh, Air Green and included. So as we hopefully now begin to emerge from this, you know, the worst of the downturn, uh, at least we all hope so, how do you see Greenlandic aviation shaping up in the years to come? Uh, and how important will aviation be to Greenland as those things uh, change? I think that everyone sort of realized how important Air Greenland is to uh, the Greenland infrastructure. But what we will see in the in in the coming years is uh, that, uh, of course, with new the plans for uh, extending the runway here in Nuuk, the capital, so it will be able to take bigger aircraft, and that's going to create the basis for uh, both competition, but also also a growing market. So I think what we'll see in Greenland is that on on the um, Sort of commercial side, we'll see more competition, we'll see more traffic, but domestically, it'll, it's going to be it will be a challenge. But I think everyone is based on on the learnings from the pandemic uh, agrees that uh, that Air Greenland is a very very important player in the infrastructure. So we'll see both a more commercialization on one side and and a more focus on the infrastructure side when we're talking domestically. If that's if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Both those developments are, are, are kind of interesting to me. I wonder, you know, for, for Air Greenland, you, you spoke about seeing competition potentially, you know, do you see it as more service, the better, more people coming to Greenland is great, or, or is it going to be difficult to adjust to a, a potential new environment where, where there is more competition? I mean, with the investment in the new A330neo, which is a very efficient aircraft, we'll have uh, the lowest uh, seat mile cost possible on 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 the route, so we will uh, Greenland will be very competitive. But I think the the big issue is not so much the airports and and the demand. I think the demand is is there. A lot of people want to go to Greenland, and with lower prices, that is something that's going to happen. I think the big issue is the, the um, receiving capacity or the reason to go, because uh, right now the hotel capacity is not matched for a big influx of, of uh, big numbers of tourists. So I think the new airports will make sort of the framework or the, um, the foundation for future growth, but it's going to be the incoming capacity that's going to set limits uh, to how many people we can uh, accept and, and, and attract. So it's, it needs to be sort of a, a, a controlled growth because right now the, the unemployment rate is low and uh, we still haven't built up, you know, a huge number of lodges or places to go. It's still kind of at an early stage in terms of tourism. So I think we'll see that with the runways, the framework is there, the foundation is there, and then the investors will come and, and build up gradually. So, so it's not necessarily the more the merrier, it's, it's more how many can we actually accommodate. And I would guess that the gradual growth is probably something you want in a place like Greenland, where part of the appeal is the fact that it's not flooded with tourists, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's we we can offer experiences that that many places can't unique experiences, and I think the learnings from the Icelandic tourism story is that more is not necessarily better. So so in order to keep 
the experience at a level where you where you experience the tranquility, you experience, well, we can offer no waiting time at airports. We can offer no traffic jams and all these things that uh, that have become very common other places in the world. And we want to maintain that in order to attract the right segment of, of tourists, of course. Right. Speaking of the A330neo, I was actually curious thinking about it. What made you want to go for the, the brand new uh, Neo plane instead of, say, you know, a, a lightly used A330, which probably there are plenty of right now at favorable rates? Yeah, it's a very, very good question and something that we've spent the last year evaluating. But every time we did the numbers, I mean, you, it's true, you can get a, a used A330 at a very good price in the current marketplace. But the difference in the long run, we're in this for the long run. If you look at a 20-year perspective, the NEO will outperform the classic A330 on a number of parameters. I mean, most important, of course, being the sustainability, the fuel efficiency of the new aircraft. It burns approximately 15% less fuel on a round trip. With the new Airbus airspace cabin, we can add more seats without compromising comfort. And that will further add to the reduced CO2 emission per passenger. You have reduced maintenance. Uh, you have a brand new product. And the performance of this aircraft actually matches the new runways here in Nuuk, which is actually going to be a very, fairly short runway. It's going to be 2,200 meters, which is just on, on the short end. And the 330 Neo is a very strong performer on short runways, also in the wintertime. So there are a number of factors that led to this decision, being both financial, image, sustainability, efficiency, products, uh, yeah, you name it. So, yeah. Aside from uh, the A330, I, I wonder at this point, are you are you looking at you know other parts of the fleet, uh, different planes that uh, might need replacing, that you know up taking on new planes for growth, that kind of thing? Is there anything under consideration that you can talk about? Yeah, yeah, we have uh, we have just replaced our search and rescue helicopters, the Sikorsky 61s, with with almost uh, brand new H225 all-weather search and rescue helicopters. We are in the process of replacing our uh, Bell 212 helicopters with uh, newer Airbus 155B1 helicopters. We have a fleet of uh, seven Bell 212s that we are replacing over the next year or two. And looking further ahead, of course, as, as we expect traffic to, to increase in and out of Greenland, we, we're, of course, looking at, at ways to, uh, to tap into that. We don't have any current plans, but, of course, we're, we're looking closely at, at the numbers. COVID has, of course, changed the outlook a little bit because it's going to take a while to get back to the, the 2019 levels. But that's definitely something that we're looking at, either that could be adding an aerobody uh, to the fleet, which is also one of the reasons for choosing the 330neo is because if you add a, let's say a 320 to the fleet, there's cockpit commonality. So the crews can operate, you know, the uh, both aircraft uh, on the same uh, licenses, more or less. So, so there are great commonalities within the Airbus family. So that is something that we're looking at. We don't have any concrete plans at the moment, but those are some of the thoughts that uh, we have for the future. What about the Dash 8s uh, that run domestically? Is there is there anything that can kind of take their place at this point? 
No, that's a really tricky one because the, the runways that the Dash 8 fleet operates uh, on are probably some of the shortest in the world for commercial operations, even shorter than the ones in northern Norway. And there is today no real alternative to the Dash 8. So we're looking closely at the uh, different initiatives. We are part of the um, the initiative for electric aviation, hot aviation, proposing a 19-seater uh, hybrid or electric aircraft. But as of today, there is no real replacement to the Dash 8, which will in time become a problem. It isn't right now. We have plenty of cycles left in our aircraft, but uh, looking 20 years down the road, it is going to be a challenge. So either there will be a new aircraft on the market that can replace the Dash 8, or uh, we will have to extend the runways in Greenland, which is going to be a very costly uh, affair. Right. Very interesting. So I wonder, moving out to sort of the broader aviation industry, from your perspective, I, I wonder how you see it at this point. You know, what, what kind of marks would you give it after a year of navigating the pandemic? And do you feel that you know, airline leadership has learned important lessons. Do you think demand will pick up quickly once we once we are seen to be kind of once it really looks like we're exiting the pandemic? Yeah, I think everyone was taken really by surprise by the pandemic. I think we have seen different approaches. We've seen a lot of trial and error. And I think one of the, the important lessons is that when, when these things happen, the world shuts down, the sort of globalization is canceled. You know, a lot of airlines and airline organizations have tried to, to put pressure on the, uh, the different governments, on the EU to, to make international, to align the rules and align the approach to handling the pandemic without any success. And, we also have seen big relief packages, which will have to be repaid. I think demand will pick up quickly. Uh, we see a, a great demand already now. People are just waiting for restrictions to be lifted. So there's no doubt that demand will pick up. I also think that a lot of airlines have uh, re reduced downsize. It has been a cost reduction exercise, but there's no doubt that the, the whole industry is beaten. It's, we, we see it here. It's, it's not attractive to work in the aviation business at the moment. Uh, the insecurity is high. A lot of pilots and engineers and cabin crew have found other jobs. There's a big question if they want to go back into the industry. I think these things will wear off, but for the next year or two, we're definitely going to be sort of burnt industry and, and we'll have to find a way back. And some are going to make it and some are not going to make it. So it's going to be interesting to see how the price war is going to play out on the backside of this, because I, I, I think that some of the, the stronger players are going to try to, um, are, are going to see, see this as a window of opportunity to uh, to really attack some of the, the weaker players in the market. So taking all that into account, would you say that you're optimistic, uh, whether that's for Air Greenland's immediate future or sort of the broader aviation industry? I'm optimistic for Greenland. I'm optimistic for the broader aviation industry, but I think we're going to see some shifts. I'm also optimistic in terms of the sustainability agenda because that's going to be, I think that's going to be accelerated uh, on the backside of this. I think it's, it's great that uh, the relief packages from the governments are attached to uh, obligations in terms of of sustainability and, and uh, fighting climate change. So, so I'm, I'm optimistic, but there's also going to be a shift. We're, we're going to see some 
some fail and 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 some some win. So there's going to be a change in the marketplace, and that's going to be interesting to uh, to see how that's going to play out. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was great to chat, and yeah, thanks for speaking with us. Yeah, thank you very much, and it's always a, always a pleasure following uh, Flight Radar. That's great. Well, we'll speak again soon. I hope. Okay. Take care. Welcome back. I thought that you know their their conversation was really interesting from the perspective of there's nobody else kind of doing what Air Greenland does, and so any decision they make is made in this context of having to navigate both the the economics of everything of running an airline, the politics of being a government run company, but also then having to deal with just being on Greenland. Yeah, that is not an easy trio of uh, restrictions or, or factors, I would say. It's very interesting how they ended up going with the A330neo when it, it seems as an outsider like such an odd, weird choice. But when you explain it, it just kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, they obviously put a lot of you know modeling and thought into into it, and I, I think when he mentioned you know kind of what they're looking for in the future, it'll be really interesting to see, given you know the expansion of the airports on the island, what ends up happening to their long haul fleet and how that expands. Yeah, it's good that they're aware of the risks of uh, overly tourisming, I guess. I, I don't know what you want to call it, but opening up uh, Greenland too much to tourism, kind of like Iceland did, where it really ramped up its economy and it kind of, uh, the bubble burst a little bit. Yeah, so it's a good yeah that they're exactly. aware of that and, and don't want to repeat that. Yeah, I, I think that the, it'll be a lot more a lot more focused on both, you know, kind of a, a sustainability aspect, like like you talked about, but also purely from a we don't want to get this wrong, and luckily we have, you know, like you mentioned, we have Iceland as kind of a don't do that guide. Let's stay with the cold weather and move over to Canada with the Comac C919. Interesting. Cold what is what's it up to? Testing cold weather testing. Got to got to have a cold soak. It's like a it's like the opposite. Uh, yeah, no, I don't think we're in. Even though it feels like we're in Canada this week, I don't think we are in Canada. The C nine one nine is going to Canada for cold weather testing in March, dependent upon you know, various COVID related factors if they can bring people over and and come and do it and, and things like that. But the Canadian International Test Pilots School uh, at the London Airport in Ontario is going to play host to the C919. This will be the first journey of the C919 outside of uh, outside of Asia, and so that'll be that'll be an interesting thing to uh, to follow and, and capture if possible. Very interesting. I, I would implore you if you are near the airport where that aircraft is going for testing to get a picture of it. Because we we have no idea what the fate of this aircraft is, given the sanctions imposed by the U.S. on, on China and, and the, I guess the the components that are required to assemble this aircraft is all in question right now. And correct me if I'm wrong, but hasn't Airbus typically in the past used the U.S. for cold weather testing? Specifically, Milwaukee and Florida comes to mind. I don't know why Florida, but isn't there a cold weather testing facility down there? 
Yes. So the Air Force Base in outside of Tampa, I want to say, has the giant cold weather testing hangar. And I think they can get it down to something like 40, minus 40, both Celsius and Fahrenheit. Ah, the magic number. They're, they're the same at that point. Uh, or, or maybe even colder. But but that's there. And then Airbus did the testing in based in Milwaukee, not for cold weather necessarily, but for icing. They found the atmospheric conditions are... Uh, you know, around the the Great Lakes, and based out of Milwaukee, it's much cheaper than flying into Chicago. So they uh, they they come here for the the icing tests. But the triple seven X is currently up in Alaska for its cold soak right now. Interesting. Uh, which is a test that it basically you get the airplane as cold as you possibly can, and then you turn it back on to make sure everything works. Uh, That's which, a good point. It's a a very you know important test because airplanes operate in all sorts of different environments. So you have to do your hot and high testing, which I believe Airbus did for the A three fifty in Bolivia, and that sounds right. And somewhere else, I can't remember exactly where the seven eight seven did its hot and high testing, but I, I think the. Comac has used one of the one of the extremely high elevation airports in China for its high altitude testing. They have some of some of the most high elevation airports in the world there. So not not a problem to to find an airport like that, but they need to to come and do their their cold weather testing in Canada. So that'll be interesting to see. Yeah, definitely go out and spot that if you can. Yeah. Along the same lines, and this is the one that I am the most interested in, Airbus is going to pursue ETOPS certification for the Beluga XL. Hmm. Why would it do that? Well, my friends, Airbus is a company that assembles aircraft in on multiple continents. And so to fly components across the Atlantic Ocean in the most efficient manner, they would need ETOPS for the Beluga XL, which is, makes me very interested in all sorts of things, you know, what they've got planned, but just, you know, purely from the fact that I could maybe spot a Beluga XL in the US. Which so really I, I'm most personally involved in in a selfish reason. Yes, that, that is definitely interesting because as of this point, the Airbus aircraft assembled in Mobile, Alabama are narrow-body aircraft, of course, the A220 and A320. Wait, A220 and A320. Did I get that right? That, that's, that's hard I think to you did, right? but it's okay. Uh, okay. But the, the fuselages for the A320 are, are shipped over by sea from from Europe. So those are not transported by air, but it's it's possible that this could just be to to quickly get components for the A320 series over to Mobile. I mean, one imagines that there's some sort of scenario where at some point they're going to need to get something over there quickly. You know, in in faster than a few weeks. So so I I could understand that happening and wanting the ability to to dispatch one of the belugas or maybe they've got something else planned i don't know maybe i i don't see it the the a330 and the a350 are not aircraft that are really 
have much of a backlog at all in, in North America, especially the U.S., where the mobile line is really only in place for the U.S. Do any U.S. airlines even have A330 or A350 orders at this point? Technically, no. Still no. Or t- I was going to say technically yes, but I don't think that's true anymore because United had that long dormant, but th- yeah, they can't that's not happening. happening. No, it was never happening, but but now it's officially not happening. I uh, think or, Delta or has all the Neos it, it ordered already. So and there. how many A three fifty? Do they have any A three fifties still on order? I don't know. There you go. So if anyone does, it's it, it it's not more than a handful, if any. So I wasn't trying to suggest that they're going to start assembling A330s or A350s in the US and they need to, to fly parts over. That that was it not sounded my intention. like you were. No, no, that was <laughs> that was not my intention. As awesome as that as that would be, it, that ain't gonna happen. Just purely on political I mean, can you imagine the upheaval in France? Amazing. Absolutely amazing. They could do it in Seattle. Oh, my. (laughs) Oh, man. There's some space opening up. Oh, too soon. Too soon. Yeah, too soon. But to to correct ourselves from literally moments ago, Delta still has quite a number of A330 Neos and A350s on order. They also have 100 A321 Neos on order. So it's. the backlog still does exist, but for the A330 or A350, no, I, I can't imagine. Not enough to open a, a, a no. second or a third, really, assembly line. Uh, no. So, but with the hundreds talk- of uh, 320 Neos uh, on on backlog, it could just be to hasten the delivery of fuselages. Yeah, that that's absolutely true, and that to me makes the most sense. You know, the 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 reason to to. Per- pursue this but and just uh, just for a reminder the beluga xl is, is based off the a330 while the regular beluga while they are still in service are based off the a310 or a300 i believe it's the a300 a300 right and they still are in service to date i believe as well just for a little while longer they're, they're, they're looking for ways to to wind them down before covid there was talk about extending the life of the the regular old belugas into a traditional kind of charter cargo aircraft. You've got something big and not so heavy, toss it in our beluga. Now the world I, needs more heavy lift aircraft. True, but these aren't really heavy lift aircraft. They're Chunky we can lift. carry two thousand trillion ping pong balls, but we can't really carry, you know, it, it, it's not a replacement for an Antonov AN124 or 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 something like that. It, it's kind of a, a a volume lift. So if, if you're shipping, you know, all of the ping pong balls in the world or or a really giant balloon, perfect. But but if you've Just got something giant so, balloon, I mean you could fit a lot of Less than giant balloons inside, I suppose. I mean, any number of balloons to fill giant the volume. Anyway, my point is, I don't think that they're looking to continue that anymore, uh, and I think we'll see those retired sooner rather than later, uh, as the as the whole Beluga XL fleet comes online. Um, so, uh, yeah. That was more conversation about that than I thought we were going to have. <laughs> yeah. But that's how these things go, and that's why this podcast is fun to do. We never know what's going to be interesting or not when we write it down. That's true. That's absolutely true. And and we but, do 
write things down, which we do. Listeners may or may not believe. Yeah, the next thing I know we have written down is just Breeze gets first E190 and I'm already bored. There you go. Well, they got their first E190. I like the livery and that's all I really have to say about that. Yeah, the livery is uh, nice. We, we still don't know anything else about the airline, but the, the planes look nice. The planes look nice. That's, that's all I got. Other E190 news Ooh, is much- E190 week. <laughs> I think any week in which a discussion of the E190 is had is a big E190 week. Jason, tell me more about kind of the the E one ninety long haul flights uh, that happened this week. E one ninety long haul—that's an oxymoron right there. But uh, the E one ninety still has its place out in the world. It, it's uh, a special aircraft in that it's kind of mainline, kind of not. It's higher capacity than a regional jet, but it's lower capacity than a mainline jet. It fits a nice niche, and Qantas also seems to believe that's the case, and has acquired a handful from Copa Airlines down in, in Panama, who has uh, retired its E-190 fleet recently. And uh, someone at work actually brought up, like, how do you get an E-190 from Panama out to Australia? And I, I spent some time very carefully. Very carefully, that's true. Yeah, you, a lot of math, and you 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 better do it right. But I I started to plug some numbers and and plug some things into GC Map to see what's what, uh, and I, I figured they would go up the North American coast over to Alaska and then over into Russia and then down through Asia into Australia, but it turns out they took a, a bit more of a direct routing. The first of the few aircraft, it looks like one went from San Jose to San Diego, San Diego nonstop to Honolulu, which is not a flight I thought the E-190 could actually make. And then it gets a little hazier from what happened from Honolulu. Some of the data points that it made a marathon 12 and a half hour Honolulu to Brisbane nonstop flight, which is just not possible. That doesn't work. But some other information points to that it actually stopped. Uh, this might sound familiar if you listen to the podcast featuring our uh, favorite, not a real airline, but flies a lot of flights, jet transport, Majuro. But all signs point to them not having gotten stuck there for three days. No, they did not have to borrow an air start uh, machine from another aircraft or, or use another aircraft to start their aircraft. But they've only delivered a couple of these aircraft, it seems like. I, I don't believe they've delivered all of them just yet. So the possibility still exists. And and Majuro is still a destination for uh, companies delivering aircraft from one continent to another. So I don't know what they're going to do when Majuro eventually is overtaken by the Pacific Ocean, but it's useful for now. So tell me more about what you wanted to do as far as the routing of these delivery flights was. I don't know if I because wanted to I, do it, I, but well, I like your idea better. I wanted it's to see if it was possible. So the range of the E-190 is somewhere around 2,400 miles, which means you, you really can't go, I, I thought at the time, nonstop from the US West Coast to Hawaii and then Hawaii to Australia. It turns out they did have to stop somewhere. But I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if they could go down to South America, into Antarctica, fly uh, east across Antarctica through the various uh, research outposts they have there, and then up to Australia, kind of sneaky way. 
And I, I don't think the jury's out on that, but it's probably not something we will ever see happen. Yeah, probably not. No, but it's interesting. We could it's try an idea. It. It's an idea. So what Jason and I are going to do is get an E190 and try it, right? What could go wrong? Yeah. I mean, can there not- are, I'm not going to call them airports, but they're landing strips with places to put gas in an airplane, right? There, there certainly are. And, and we have receivers at, at a bunch of them now. We're up to, up to six research station airfields that we now have receivers at. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about being able to, to track the entire flight. We should do this. Why it's do a we have no idea? We should do this. It's terrible. But why do we have six more receivers in Antarctica than we do in uh, out in the Pacific, like Majuro? We got to fix that. If well, you're listening to the podcast and live in Majuro, please host a receiver. Please do. Please do. So, in in airline business news, because that's what Jason and I are both known for. But Sun Country is going public. They're launching their IPO. And and we bring this up not because we're interested necessarily in the IPO. But, oh, no. Yeah. But Sun Country has a very interesting dynamic going on right now in that they're, they are an airline that focuses on people who never have to fly anywhere, but want to fly somewhere. But they've also taken on an outsized role in in the cargo market uh, as relative to the size of their, their overall fleet, which is pretty fascinating. And, and so it's going to be really interesting to see what the IPO does for them and, and the direction that they continue to go. And, and does cargo become an even bigger part of their, their operation? Yeah. Sun Country has always been a privately held airline, so there hasn't been much visibility into exactly uh, what what it's thinking and, and how it's doing financially. But we do now know that Sun Country actually turned a small profit during the first nine months of 2020, uh, $4.1 which is you know not exactly rolling around in, in uh, a bank vault of gold coin. But it's profit in 2020, which is a, a, a very good thing. But we also now know that it's looking to expand and it's identified three to five used 737-800s that it could add to its fleet. Its fleet that already comprises, I did not think it was this much, but 12 737 freighters out of a fleet of only like 40 aircraft. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a, been a pretty big jump and they went from kind of, we're going to do this and here are the first couple to now we've got you know, a dozen planes and and we're really doing this rather quickly. Yeah. And they're doing some interesting routes too that you don't see a ton of with the traditional freight operators. I think they have a bunch of transcons like LA to JFK with a 737-800 freighter is definitely not the norm. Yeah. I think, well, a lot of what they're flying is for for uh, for Amazon Air, and so I, I think that's really interesting. A really interesting look into Amazon Air's business as well, using you know the, these contract freighters. So that that's a whole whole other interesting thing that that I think we'll get more detail on w- with the IPO for Sun Country. But definitely something to watch. Uh, they're they're an interesting airline. They've long been kind of this. Enigma because they're not a public company as far as what they're going to do and how they're going to do it, but one to watch. Yeah, they've definitely come a long way since their flights from JFK to Minneapolis, where I look at it and say, Why? Why are you doing this? Why are you here? I don't know to, to answer your question. I don't think I, they knew. 
maybe they're learning about it and we'll continue to learn about it. So before we go, we've got some housekeeping that we want to clear up and we're going to do a new segment that we're calling Listener Mailbag. So one thing that we talked about in the last episode in my harebrained scheme to have the Norwegian government rescue Norwegian by selling its stock in GameStop. Oh um, boy, there's a lot wrong with that. Well, setting the the poor nature of the idea aside. We said some things and I want to clear some things up and go from there. The Norwegian government does not actually control the the pension fund that held the shares in GameStop. First of all, it, it's it's run separately from kind of the, the political arm of the government with good reason, one argues. So so when I was I was kind of conflating the Norwegian government with, with the pension fund, so I apologize for that. Two, and most importantly, it looks like it wasn't even possible because they already sold their shares. Damn, they didn't hold long enough. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't. And then the the third thing was that we had talked about a lot of people wrote in explaining how the pension fund worked. And, and I thank people for doing that. But I wanted to kind of clear up when we said that we didn't know why they were holding shares in GameStop. It wasn't necessarily the, the function of the, the pension fund that we were questioning. It was, why would you buy shares in GameStop? That's One, the best question. Yeah, yeah, that that was the whole point. One listener wrote in with with some good commentary that basically said, "Why not?" Um, the the fund has it well. The fund has so much money that it, it basically just buys one and a half to two and a half percent of everything, um, and and that's kind of where that's kind of where this came from. Yeah, that that's. That's where we are, and and we'll leave it at that. So the next thing that we are going to do uh, is is what we're calling the listener mailbag. And so if you have a question about aviation, anything big, small, anything in between, no matter how silly it it may be, send us an email at podcast at fr24.com, and we will endeavor to answer it. If we don't know the answer, then we will find somebody who does, and we will get back to you with that answer. That said, listener Matthew Justice wrote us in and had a question about aircraft registrations. My question is, why do some airlines slash countries put the aircraft registration above or under the wing while others don't? And and so he posited that this might be kind of a, a high risk activity in, in order to identify aircraft easily for certain areas. And while that's an interesting thought, the answer is is much more mundane in that uh, the regulations say that you have to, and that you are supposed to, and the ICAO. Annex 7 lays out exactly how big they're supposed to be, where they're supposed to be, how they're supposed to appear, and all of those things. And on heavier-than-air aircraft, you are supposed to put the registration on the wings. It's supposed to appear once on the lower structure of the ring and once on the, the fuselage. And then it provides you know, how big they're supposed to be and, and given the size of the aircraft and, and things like that. So if they're supposed to be there, why do some airlines not have them? And as it turns out, a country can say, 
we're not going to do that. And then just not do it. And so in the US, which is why you don't see that on, on most aircraft in the US, you don't see a, a, an underwing registration. The US has said, we're, we're not going to do that. And yeah. so they, okay. that, that they checks out. Filed, they filed, you know, basically, you know, file with, with ICAO and say, we are opting out of that particular regulation. We're not going to follow those guidelines and have a good day. All right. And yeah, we will definitely do not follow that in the US because there have been a number of times, especially back in the day with American MD-80s, it was always next to impossible to spot the registration number on those aircraft due to where they were in, in correlation to the tail and the paint. In my, photo, in my photos, I could almost never see the registration. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was that – was well, it didn't help that the registration was – Tiny, and no, it was course, tiny. If the sun was out, it hit it in such a way with when you could see it, you couldn't actually see it because the the reflection off the the bare metal fuselage. Right. So the U.S. is not unique in its uh, no, we are not going to do that, which is technically uh, called a a differences of national regulations and practices. So. Other countries include Bangladesh, Canada, South Korea, Fiji, Germany, Indonesia, Italy, Mali, Netherlands, New Zealand, Poland, Russia, Singapore, Spain, and the UK. Good company. Uh, so, so by no means you know, by itself, but that answers that question. So it's supposed to be there, but you can opt out of the registration on the wing markings. We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes to some images of the wing markings just so everybody kind of knows what exactly we're talking about. So Matthew, thank you for writing in and kicking off our, our new listener mailbag. If you have a question, no matter you know how small or even how large, please email us podcast.fr24.com and we will go down the rabbit hole and, and try and find an answer. So that was a, a fun part of my week. And, yeah, you and came I, prepared. I rather enjoyed that. So, so there you go. Before we close out, I will politely implore everyone listening, if you have enjoyed the podcast or even if you haven't, please leave us a rating, review, wherever you listen to your podcasts. We are dependent upon those for, for other people to find the podcast and then listen to Jason and I ramble on about uh, airplanes and aviation and all that good fun stuff. Uh, so so we appreciate those for everyone that's left one and we, we hope that you can do that for us. Greatly appreciate it. This has been episode 104 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.